one path, one choice, we win, or everyone dies. This is There and or Back Again, a special series by my brother, my captain, my podcast. Normally, our adventures have us journeying across Middle Earth, but here we jump into hyperspace to a galaxy far, far away. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is Narkina 5, Episode 8 of Andor. Our spoiler warning is we will be spoiling everything that has aired thus far in Andor and any knowledge we may have of the Star Wars universe to date. I don't think much of that will matter. Actually, I don't think that's actually accurate. But between the two of us, we've consumed a lot of Star Wars books, cartoons, comics, and games, so stuff will come out. By a lonely prison wall I heard a young girl calling Michael, they have taken you away For you stole Trevelyan's corn So the young might see the morn Now a prison ship lies waiting in the bay. The dead speak. Just kidding. No, they absolutely do not. And nobody knows that better than the Empire, who, after having successfully equated a mid-tier bank robbery with 9-11, have reinvented a little thing we like to call mass incarceration. We catch up with Mr. Cash and Andor mere minutes after we left him, fresh off receiving a bloated six-year prison sentence for the crime of, uh, existing? Now, what kind of cartoonishly evil empire could ever support a thing like that? Haha, <laughs> just kidding. Thanks, Mr. President. Anyways, Cashin's brought on board a prison ship where, shoeless and disoriented, he learns that discipline is enforced in this joint through a, quote, minimally invasive procedure, aka massive electrocution administered directly via the floor. This prison is a workhouse. Don't let the Steve Jobs Apple aesthetics and airy we work office vibes confuse you. This is Fordism at its finest. Welcome to the abominable bastard child of Victorian working conditions and hip, trendy jargon, better known as Silicon Valley. No, no, sorry, better known as Star Wars. There are hierarchies on hierarchies here. Kino Loy, played by the inimitable Andy Serkis, is a fellow prisoner come floor manager. He's our man, the scrub master, and he is got a big ol' warning for Keith, aka Cashin. Don't fuck up my productivity levels. Don't do anything to ruin my chance of leaving this place in 200 days, and I won't kill you. Cool. Fine. We've all been there. Time for Cashin to join the workforce, assembling what we don't really actually know what, but isn't that the point, really? Absolute alienation from your labor. There's a cameo from our friend Melshi, who the eagle-eyed among us will remember as one of the ground troops who went with Jen and Cashin to Scarif and Rogue One. Aw, sweet. And, of course, there is a whole prison load of misery. Meanwhile, Cyril Karn, the galaxy's most pathetic little man, is being kept in a cage a la Hannibal Lecter, getting a bollocking for the ages by Star Wars' Lenny Riefenstahl, Deidre Miro. Stop filing false reports about Cash and Andor, she says. It's getting in the way of me finding him. Of course, how could she possibly know that the Empire already has Cashin in captivity? It's not like there was a point to galactic consolidation or anything. 
On Coruscant, Mon Mothma looks so hot, I am momentarily willing to forget she's an archlib. There's some character background here. Mon and her dipshit loser husband Perrin were married at age 15. Yikes. And Perrin may or may not have been something of a radical in his youth. A joke that was much, much funnier three hours ago when Liz Truss, herself an ex-socialist, was still Prime Minister of Britain. And, oh, of course, don't forget, Palpatine might actually have some democratic legitimacy among the drooling idle bourgeois of the Imperial Corps. Funny that. Elsewhere, in a scene so upsetting I'm going to positively race through it, Marva is sick. Marva is sick, Marva is cold, and mercy of all mercies, Marva is not alone. Both Bix and Brasso are there watching over her, even if she won't accept the help she so plainly needs. Bix, desperate, sends a message to Luthen. Where is Cashin? It's a good question, Bix, and one literally everybody is asking. Bell and Cinta, Star Wars' greatest canonical lesbians, are now on barracks trying to answer that question too, while also asking some questions about who they are. Cinta tells Vel to leave. There's no need for the two of them to be here, to which Vel, offended, wonders, what about us? Good question, Vanessa Ann Hudgens in High School Musical. What about us? Okay, well, bad news, Vel. Your girlfriend is way cooler than you are and knows you a little too well. You're a rich girl running away from your guilt, says Cinta, and I told you up front, the struggle will always come first. We take what's left. Holy God on high, I love women so much. So, Val leaves, Cinta stays, and back on Coruscant, Luthen and Clea shut down Bix's line to them. Ferrix is abandoned, just in time for Bix to be captured by our good friend Deidre Miro, going full Jessica Chastain in Zero Dark Thirty. Lest we forget that this is, astonishingly, a prequel to Rogue One, Peep Two Tubes stand in guard outside Sagrera's hidden base as Luthen arrives to slur the partisans as anarchists and begs Saw to join the Coalition bombing forces. We are presented with the utterly delightful treat of actual ideological differences in Star Wars, including one that straight up made me holler. Galactic Partitionists. This brings us, regrettably, to my absolute least favorite moment of any Andor episode. A plot beat they rely on so heavily that makes me feel nothing but rage and despair when they, whenever they lazily wheel it out. It is, of course, the end of the episode. Only 9,177 minutes until next Wednesday. Yeah, is that like the tab that Andor sees on his screen? We get one that tells us how long until the next Andor episode. <laughs> oh my god, I'm going to set one up <laughs> to look exactly like that too. <laughs> The word slipping is used quite a bit in this episode. It starts very literally with Cassin's prison transport when the prisoners are asked to slip off their shoes, sandals, their boots. We'll come back to the footwear soon enough, but we find the term slipping elsewhere. With Luthen, Clea constantly accuses him of slipping, of not being on his game, of being sloppy, of being too preoccupied with Andor and Ferrix. Later in the prison... Wait, sorry, Imperial Factory Facility, <laughs> when one of the other captives yeets himself on the floor of death, the other inmates say he's been slipping of late, referring to his mind. Something Andy fucking Circus <laughs> warns Andor to keep to himself. Lose your mind? That's not my problem. 
Love how this happens also with the camera on Cassian. Like, we don't see this man step onto the floor, but we see Cassian asleep and then Jar awake. Yeah. Also after a 30-shift time jump, so it's not like Cassian gets there and this happens right away. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I think the other thing that um, is really fun about the whole the, the whole kind of slippage um, and slipping slippage and is... And I can't believe, like, I was, I'm still kind of going through a personal crisis over this show because I really didn't think prequels could actually be good. And it turns out they can be. Um, but this is like a show that's super aware of kind of the end point of Rogue One. Um, and not like not just where it, this is a show that's concerned, not just with making the starting point of Rogue One, quote unquote, make sense or fill it out. It's also concerned with adding more emotional weight to the end point of Rogue One. And and there's a line in... Um, one of the early, I think it's episode, it is episode three, in episode three, um, where uh, Lu- Luthen and Cassian are just meeting um, in in that awesome aliens-inspired warehouse with all of the chains hanging down from the ceiling. Um, and uh, Luthen says, always build your exit. And when, when when that episode first came out, that was like the first, I think that was the first moment where this show really actually got me because I was all like choked up and going, I'm not crying. Um, but because, you know, in Rogue One, Cashin doesn't build his exit. Um, he doesn't build his exit and he dies on Scarif because he hasn't built an exit, um, an exit plan at all. Um, and this whole idea of of like... And slipping and 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 slipping also being very like being very closely equated to kind of these moments of humanity. Um, because there's this bit where, you know, Luthen is is quote unquote slipping because he's feeling some level of sympathy or interest for both uh, Bix and ha, and or Cashin. Um and uh Clay accuses him of slipping, and then there's this whole kind of chat about slipping, mentally slipping in in uh in, in the prison, and that that goes hand in hand with suicide, which is again one of these incredibly like aggressively human things, this aggressively human action. And then you get to to Rogue One and and Cashin has been reminded and told and educated and always build your exit. Although I'm not quite sure he's learned that yet lesson yet at this point in the show. But he does slip. He he slips. He doesn't build his exit. Um and he dies for it. And 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 they're introducing all of these things to the show and 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 like to in universe Cashin's life that make Rogue One all the richer. And I and I'm fucking floored <laughs> that a prequel has been able to do this, and that it's been able to do this while being a, a sort of knockdown drag out show of its own. And and um yeah, I mean just these kind of little things and the fact that we can talk about little word choices like this and it actually means something instead of it just being a word choice because like the writers were trying to sound fancy or whatever. Like God, what relief. Yeah. And I think of slipping also in terms of like regression. I think in part of the commodification of like narrative analysis, everyone wants these clean like character arcs Mm -hmm. um, where people are just like, oh, I learned my lesson and now I'm good about this all the time. And that's not really how people work. Like we might learn our lesson and we might be better about stuff, but we still will fuck up some of the same things over and over again. Um, And I don't think like we really account for that, especially in like franchise storytelling. Like we just like do these very rote character arcs where people learn, they change, they grow. And that's great. You know, it's satisfying storytelling, but that isn't really how it is. And then when you kind of blow that concept up to this is an actual like leftist rebellion movement, you are going to get some wins, but you are going to regress during that time too, especially once it starts getting big enough where you have to start like 
cohering a bunch of different ideologies around each other, it is going to get messy and you might take some steps back. Um, but we also have to know that you have to kind of plow through that as opposed to taking those as failures or defeats um, and then just like kind of sinking back, well, we can't do anything about it. Yeah. And I think there's also something like, like I think you're, you're so right to point out the fact that they, like this whole idea of like a character arc being a character starts at like uh, step zero and makes it to step 10 and the movement from step zero to step 10 is is the character arc um and these things are all numbers and they can only move in one direction sequentially and that's like you're right it's fucking bullshit it's stupid as shit um but there's also something i think kind of sad about it because it removes an actual element and like a really vital element of like character uh, like a human character a fictional characterization which is um these moments at which we progress and and the moments at which we make the same mistakes that we've made before and that we have allegedly learned to not make anymore actually end up being kind of really revealing about who we are as people um like a really kind of kind of wrote or, or like kind of quoted an example of this right is is i'm really bad at math um, and i've always been really bad at math and one of the reasons i'm really bad at math is because i have always been told that i'm bad at math and so i'm like fuck this not worth my time and so i race through math um, and i'm 24 years old now and have been getting told to stop and slow down and take a deep breath when i'm working on like mathematical problems for let's say 20 years now um, and i and i never do and i never have um, and and that that fact that i keep making that mistake even though i've been taught not to make that mistake is revealing about my personality right like it says that i have a, a low tolerance for things that i'm not immediately good at right like that is a that is a revealing character trait and if you look at the way that people slipping and the mistakes that people make and after they've allegedly learned their lesson and it is it is it is deeply revealing like the the fact that like you know cashin is learning all of these lessons about how to not get caught and how to not do stupid shit in a rebellion in the course of this show and then we see him make these mistakes again in rogue one um shows us something about who he is as a character um and it, it, it the show fortifies who he is as a character and and it is a regression in some ways and it's not necessarily a, a, a negative regression um it, because he's going out and doing you know he's going out in a blaze of glory he's dying in potentially a stupid way that could have been avoided because he really truly believes in something and um, and he is he is showing this sort of outward and 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 kind of unrepentant um sense of belief in something and that is going back to that like character that we saw both like in the flashbacks um uh, you know where he stays behind because he wants to beat the shit out of the the ship uh that got uh, his pal killed um or you know the cashin that we see now who's fighting with uh, like with himself over whether he does the thing that is safe or the thing that is good um and ultimately his inability to decide is the thing that lands him in jail and now or later in rogue one his ability to decide and to pick to go back to what he has sort of always been which is like you know the kind of clearly principled kind of emotionally motivated person is the thing that also kills him um or gets him killed but like there's so many there's so much sort of like emotionality tied up in that and and it's this idea that like mistakes are a, a, an important part of a character and you don't just need to solve problems with characters to have an interesting character mm -hmm. and i'd also like to point out that slipping is not falling like i think when they were doing the aldani heist and bell has that moment where she freezes for a second yeah. that is someone like slipping but then she studies herself thanks a lot to cinta of course but like that's what i think of is like you can slip, you can kind of lose your footing. We all do it when we walk on ice, and I get it quite a bit here in Chicago. <laughs> uh, but, like, you know, 
a lot of the times we're able to steady ourselves, you know, or even if we do like fall on our ass, we pick ourselves back up and keep moving. Um, I think that's like a key part of the metaphor here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I also think it's kind of nice because God, and again, like how fucking nice is it to be able to talk about like something as minor as, as kind of like verbiage in, in dialogue and know that it's actually going to impact the rest of the show because this isn't just a show written by dipshits. Um, but you know, this idea of slipping, right? Like we've been introduced to a prison environment, um, where you're caught, like the prisoners literal contact with the floor their ability to stay on the floor feet down on the floor is how they are tortured and the people who have the power are literally the people with the boots the boots that prevent them from having actual skin-to-skin contact with the floor like what great way to like introduce this and to kind of tie up the environmental storytelling with the literal dialogic storytelling and like yeah we got it Yeah, uh, that boot stuff is really great because we do see the Imperial boot come down all over the galaxy, a comprehensive view of said boot. We see the people wearing the boots, the people squashed underfoot, the people licking those boots, and those saying, boy, that sucks. Someone should do something about those boots. (laughs) And just like tying that all to these like special like moon boots that the Imperial factory personnel have and that all the prisoners walk around barefoot on the floor that makes you die, um, which is apparently made of tungstoid steel. Gotta love uh, that Star Wars elemental name. And it's that was one of like the craziest things I've seen in Star Wars in forever. Like that moment when they put on the floor and you see all the prisoners getting tortured and the way that they're kind of like snapped into these weird backbreaking positions and shaking. Like that might be the most unsettling thing I've mm-hmm. ever seen in a Star Wars thing yep. ever. It, like it's like pure horror movie as well because I think one of the things that really threw me about that is like um like I just seen Barbarian the night before which by the way great movie um, <laughs> everybody has to watch that that was not a movie I was expecting any part of uh, and I mean that affectionately um and, and there's this kind of language right we talk about this a lot actually with Lord of the Rings right like there, there's a, there's a toolbox there's a there's a vocabulary a vernacular for for horror movies um that that and is great within horror movies but even better when it escapes the containment zone and like you know whether that's like the gory horrifying stuff in in moria and peter jackson's lord of the rings uh, or whether it's literally anything in peter jackson's lord of the rings um uh, or whether it's this here and you know this looks like a bit like um the uh, exorcism of emily rose which is just a it's a garbage like not even fun garbage it's just a garbage horror movie um features uh you know this kind of backwards kind of uh Back, like a backspring, a back bridge, and and this idea of like taking the human body, which is like obviously quite literally, definitionally something very organic, and twisting it against its will. Like what a great kind of marriage of the like aggressive figurative language of like the left. This idea that like capitalism and imperialism are against our very nature as human beings, and then literally the f- and marrying that to the physical, literally making them bend over backwards in pain. Like oh, chef's kiss. What a brilliant marriage of the genres there. Oh, that's such a good observation. And I'm also thinking of these boots, and we see a small panel of boots on the wall as Andor is walking past them. And we compare that to the wall of gloves from the first episode of the season. And, you know, to talk about that, we even get Brasso back Mm. uh, in this episode, and he's carrying his heavy gloves when we see him. And one is a symbol of the ruling class, the boot, versus the hands of the working class. Uh, There's just a clear sense of symbology in the show that I really appreciate. Um, And it really is like starting to pay off in ways that aren't really necessarily important to the character or the plot, but visually everything is clicking. Yeah. 
Uh, you know what? I really, really actually, like, I've been kind of joking about this, and this isn't just me wanting to make everyone, like, everyone who's art, I, like, I don't need them to fit my politics, but but I actually think, like, you are right to point out, like, the, the boot and the glove as as these kind of opposing, um, like, symbolic sort of, well, these opposing symbols. Um, incredibly popular um, among uh, a, a sort of strand of, of left-wing propaganda in the 20th century. Um, I think, you know, some of my, my favorite, of course, because I, I am who I am and I have my, my brain problems, um, some of my favorite instances of this are like the, the print work uh, done in the, the, the Paris uh, May 1968 protests surrounding the general strike. This is when like the students, <laughs> the Maoist students occupied the Sorbonne. Uh, there was a nationwide uh, general strike. Uh, and, and some of the great block printing posters that came out of that feature prominently boots literally coming down on on fists on raised fists and 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 um you know that is such an old like old and kind of storied and and valued and important uh symbolic language to the left and i think there is an element of this where i don't think someone who was not of a vaguely left background you know it doesn't necessarily have to be on the left now but was at some point a part of the organized left or at least intimately aware of the organized left i don't think someone who didn't have that sort of background would necessarily come up with this in the same way and it's something i'm kind of noticing all throughout these episodes is like um there is a lot of language and there's a lot of kind of jokes not jokes necessarily but references or kind of um you know you know bits of dialogue or or literal symbols that are so deeply grounded in the kind of traditional edifices of the marxist left um and and i'm like part of me is like maybe i'm just crazy like maybe i am just uh, imagining things, but also part of me is like, no part of this show was not thought through. And so these things that I'm seeing, these patterns that I'm picking up, like, uh, you know, about, um, uh, about how people conduct themselves, you know, later in the episode, we get, um, uh, Luthen slurring Saw as an anarchist, even though it is very clear that Saw is the farthest thing from an anarchist. Um, and, and, you know, that's an old, old, old left thing people love to do to one another. There are all these kind of little bits and pieces of the kind of true old Marxist left coming through and i'm like holy shit what the fuck like how did this happen and 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 how nice is it to see it done so well in in art in in such a in a way that is like so broadly accessible that loads of people are going to be getting this into their heads without having ever touched uh like you know traditional sort of uh uh like writing and, and culture of, of the marxist left and these people are going to get this and they're going to understand it what a huge huge dub like what a huge and unexpected dub <laughs> Yeah, it's great. And I think because we are so perennially online, um, you know, we kind of look at that stuff and say, oh, this sounds like Twitter infighting. But I'm going to give Tony Gilroy the benefit of the doubt and say he's probably not terminally online. <laughs> and I think he's actually posing what are legitimate questions. I think we've just had the same argument online so often that we forget that these are kind of valuable questions to ask. And also in terms of finding how we can band together and like you can only go without ideology for so far i think that's what we're seeing with cassian like he is like yeah, yeah. i can still kind of do the scheme me be versus the rest of the world <laughs> i can win and walk away i can get away from my problems i can be a tourist in this life i don't have to you know put my boots down and like you know pick up a gun and be a soldier <laughs> and i think at a certain point that you know you run up against it you just <laughs> There's nothing else you have to do. You have to start answering those questions or else in the end, your answer is going to be the one that sides with the systems that are currently in place.
place and oppressing. Yeah, yeah. And you know what, actually, like, like brilliantly pointed out as well, because if you look at Luthen at the end of this, and, and holy shit, one of my favorite moments, I didn't, like, every episode has one of my favorite moments in a Star Wars, but this had one of my favorite episodes in a Star Wars, and I wasn't expecting it. The conversation between Luthen and Saw at the end, um, and, and, and Saw is like, you know, after listing off the most chef's kiss phenomenal list of galactic ideologies uh, and, and you know, kind of looking down on them as as the leftists want to do, as Maoists on the left as well. I'm going for the Ma- the Maoists and the ultras here. I'm coming for your throats on this one. Um, but, like, you know, as these people are wont to do, he, he's kind of looking down on all of these different ideologies. And then he turns to Luthen and is like, but I've never known what you are. And Luthen has the most mealy mouth bullshit answer where he's like, oh, I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy who's scared about the overreach of power. Um, uh, you know, I, I I don't really subscribe. It's not he, he's not actually saying this, but it, the the implication is is so obvious, which is I'm not a guy who subscribes to ideology. I'm above the sort of petty and fighting of ideology, and none of this stuff really matters to me. I don't read theory. I just do the practical stuff. Is essentially what's going on there. And and here's the kind of interesting thing about the 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 status of Andor as a prequel. We don't know where Luthen is um, in, in Rogue One or the rest of Star Wars. Um, so he is not involved in the rebellion, uh, as far as we've seen. Uh, he's certainly not a major figure in the rebellion. He's not involved in Rogue One at all. So there is a very good chance that this is someone who ultimately does not actually make uh, a lasting impact on the rebellion, um, except by the people who he sort of influences one way or another. But he doesn't. He doesn't survive in a tangible way through the rest of the the rebellion and the rest of galactic history and what like a perfect kind of send off like you know uh, flipping the v uh to people who think that like they can kind of get away uh you know they can get along in the world and they can play power politicking without actually having a grounding in in like a sincere ideology like it, you know it's it's the thing that everybody is hitting cash in with and in, in this show you can't do this alone you can't do anything alone and luthan is still kind of intellectually positioning himself as someone who's just doing it out of benevolence and and just kind of doing it because he's a he's a guy who just really strongly believes in stuff um, and is a bit of an intellectual maverick and doesn't need the sort of silliness of, of ideology and well uh, of the two men in that conversation at the end there only one of them has uh any sort of like longevity in these stories and it ain't luthan say what you will about human cultists but at least it's an ideology <laughs> uh but i think that actually works really well because the show sets up Luthen as this like ultimate kind of badass figure. And I hate using reductive terminology <laughs> like that, but he seems like a guy who's got his shit figured out. Mm-hmm. But then showing us that he is, you know, he has his own limits and that what he thinks and what he does can only go so far, especially without ideology. Uh, I think that plays really well with the semi like teacher apprentice relationship he has with Andor because then Luthen becomes something Andor can grow beyond. <laughs> like he can see the limitations in his, um, and I don't mean that like, Oh fuck, Luthen sucks. I got to be better than this, but it's just like, he can see where, and I, I expect Luthen not to make it and not because he doesn't show up in a new hope or the battle of Endor, but mostly because I'm sure Stellan Skarsgård is the most expensive person on this cast. <laughs> and that's exactly the kind of people you cast for one season of television. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm not throwing down one way or another, but <laughs> I think there. this is really setting up because 
kind of like uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi had his limits and Luke kind of had to learn and, you know, go beyond that. Um, we're seeing a little bit of something like that, but because the show is so rooted in ideology, that necessarily has to be that like point of character that where those two points are going to intersect is the ideology over rebellion for Cassian and Luthan. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think there's also kind of something interesting because like, I, I, I know like, and I think we are still right. The podcast position is still correct that like, just because, um, you know, these characters don't show up in A New Hope or a Rogue One or whatever doesn't mean they're not out there. But I but I think there is also sort of an element of there. there is kind of a sense of doom and foreboding around a lot of these characters. And, and I think the show is kind of trading a bit on the fact that like the 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 fans the weird crazy fans like us who remember all of the lists of names of every character who's ever shown up in a star wars movie or tv show like it's banking on the fact that we kind of have those you know rolodexes in our head and and it's and it's playing with that emotionally i think and there is a sense of a lot of these people if they are not going to actually literally die they are going to fall to something that is just short of the kind of legendary status. And it's kind of asking that question, which is the question that Rogue One is also sort of trying to ask, which is like, you know, is it is it actually sad if you don't become a hero? Is it actually sad if you don't become a legend? Is it okay to just die and 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 not like a well? Is it okay to die in obscurity? And um, or is there something kind of foreboding about that? And is there something kind of terrifying about that? And the show seems to be playing with it a bit. Like you know, we get the sense that um, you know. Bix is a is a character who I think is really fascinating and she she's she's great. Um but if she dies, there will be people who are sad, but the world will not change. Nemec, right? Nemec is my favorite character in Star Wars. I don't even know who Luke Skywalker is at this point anymore. Nemec is the best <laughs> character to have ever existed. And Nemec dies and it, the world doesn't change. The galaxy doesn't change because of it. But there's still a, a sadness and, and a, there's a, a real emotional depth to it. And the show is kind of playing with that. And I almost think someone like Luthan, maybe for the very practical reasons of damn Skarsgård's expensive, but like, you know, there's something almost kind of, he, he feels like a doomed man and I don't think that like many of these kind of characters in in and or feel like people who are going to either like in terms of like their their literal ability to live or their lives as like the set of material conditions uh, you know that they inhabit like i think a lot of these characters will never break out of that um, and there's something both like exciting and desperately sad about it yeah, absolutely. I think the show is absolutely trading on the fact that we expect a lot of these people to die and not just from like because of what we know about the rebellion or whatever, but also because that's also kind of a tone that Rogue One set. Yeah. Um, so you kind of think it might trade on that a little bit. Uh, while we we're here talking about Luthan and Saw, uh, just want to talk about that scene a little bit more in depth. Uh, it's set on Segra Milo, which is a new planet to me. Um, again, I'm only really counting the live action stuff, uh, but I really like how they like say hello to each other um, in terms of like, they keep, you did the Eldani job? No, you did the Eldani <laughs> job. I know you did the Eldani job. It's like, it's really cute. And part of me is almost positive that they don't say it, but I'm sure that Saw now knows that Luthen did it. Mm -hmm. um, even though the conversation kind of ended it with just Luthen saying Saw did it, Saw did it, Saw did it. It's almost like I'm giving you something to take credit for. Um, and you know, I just love that it's, there's a playfulness there, even though that they're budding ideology in a minute here. Um, I do like that there is something else there rather than these people are just purely transactional or like business associates. There's a, 
different level of camaraderie here than we say see in other aspects of the story. Yeah. And, and you know what? It actually reminds me. So because uh, the country I live in, Scotland, is tiny. There's literally six million people here, which is as many people are in the entire city of London. Um like the left is also kind of naturally quite small. It is a bit of a village. And there's always something funny because like the, the left um, for a variety of reasons, like uh, not the least of which is like the issue of the national question, whether Scotland should be it's an independent nation or whether it should remain a part of uh, the United Kingdom, the question of Ireland, wh- whether Ireland should be united, whether Ireland should be continue to be colonized and destroyed by the, the, the Brits. And, you know, to everything to like kind of the basic questions like capitalism versus uh, socialism and communism or, uh, you know, questions about like the, the status of borders. Anyways, all the kind of normal things that define politics, right? Like the Scottish left has a, has a, a very kind of fractious history. Um, but it also has a kind of interesting longevity to it where there are lots of people who are still active on the Scottish left who have been active for, you know, between 40 and 60 years. Um, and it is one of the kind of greatest pleasures of my life is getting to see these people you know, people who are, you know, 60, 70 years old who have been doing this since before my parents were born, um, who have to interact with people who they are ideologically opposed to within the left, but are, are also sort of part of this coalition against capitalism in 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 a belief that there is any sort of coalition there. And you watch them interact and they've had these like incredibly bitter, bitter, bitter fights and splits. Um I recommend anyone kind of interested in this to look up the history of, uh, for example, Comrade Delta and the SWP and the rape scandal there and, uh, well, the rape there, um, or Tommy Sheridan and, and uh, the Scottish Socialist Party. And you'll you'll get a sense for kind of how vitriolic these inter-left fights can be. And watching Saw and Luthen talk to one another was like watching some of these guys here talk to one another, where there's like this sort of feigned cordiality on the basis of these guys truly and deeply believe in in, in the concept of uh, of comradeship, of camaraderie. Um, but they also f- fucking hate each other's guts and don't trust each other and are like, everything that you are doing is wrong. You're doing it for maybe kind of the right reasons, but everything you're doing is wrong practically and theoretically. And fuck you, I hate you. But also, at least you're not a Tory or a Nazi. Um, and it just had that vibe. And this is another one of these things where I'm sitting here watching this going, God, the- Tony Gilroy must have some sort of relationship to the left, the traditional left, because like it's too on the nose. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I just want to see if uh, I can run down all the little like <laughs> groups that Saw mentions here. He mentions the separatists, the partisan alliance, the Gorman front, neo-republicans, which is one I'm sure we'll talk about <laughs> in a second. Uh, let's see, human cultists and galactic partitionists. I also have sex tortoise in here, which is my phone autocorrecting, and I had no idea what that was supposed to be. Um, but neo-Republican's interesting, because I think you have a read on that, because you're not like in the middle of American politics. To me, that almost reads as neoliberal in terms of American politics, um, just as in like that's how we how they would call it there in the Star Wars universe. But I think you have a different read on what kind of ideology might surround neo-republicans. Yeah. So I, I think I think you are probably correct that it is just kind of meant to be a sub for liberalism. Um, but neo-republicanism, republicanism and neo-republicanism generally have a, a really interesting history and the great country of France, uh, who I will not dunk on too hard since I've already dunked on them already. Um, but there is this, um, you know, really long and uh, difficult history in France. Uh, I recommend Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast for anyone who is not aware of what a colossal fuck up of a country France is. Um, and um, one of the kind of pervasive uh, uh, 
questions in in uh, French politics, like all all sort of political kind of national political national political sort of bodies, uh, is is this question of what is the state actually meant to look like? Is it meant to be? Uh, a state, a, a monarchist state with a, a with an uh, an all powerful, omnipresent uh, 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 executive. Is it meant to be something like a parliamentary democracy with a very weak executive and a very strong uh, legislative body? Is it meant to be something like what the French have now, where the executive is kind of both strong and weak, uh, and the the legislative is kind of strong occasionally and mostly just quite weak. Um, and and they split out um, also not just along sort of questions of how uh, a state should look, but they split out along questions of capitalism versus communism versus uh, some sort of hellish trad Vichy mix. Um, and neo-republicanism or republicanism in French, particularly since the 1970s and the like election of uh, Giscard d'Estaing, who was an awful neolib wee freak, uh, uh, has kind of taken this weird thing where it's half of the left, like the traditional left, and this is like the Jean-Luc Mélenchon kind of left, the, the old Marxist left, and half of the kind of neo literal neoliberal uh, left, um, and and uh, what used to be uh, Emmanuel Macron's kind of uh, uh, coalition, like electorate coalition, uh, electoral co- coalition rather, um, and uh, now no longer is because he's done his weird Jupiterian shit. Um, but neo-republicanism has this very specific kind of reference point of the literal French Revolution and the idea that not only should there be a return to the sort of uh, strong legislative uh, legislature of the French Revolution, of the Assemblée Nationale, um, but and also a kind of concurrent weakening of, of the executive, you know, they quite literally killed the king. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, there's kind of that close tether there. But then there's this um, for the neo-Republicans, there is also this element of aggressive liberalism attached to it. And, and this idea that, um, that, that, um, it should be a deeply strong legislative, uh, with a weak executive that is also, um, married to the idea of capitalism and this idea of Euro capitalism, where it's very protectionist and interventionist within the, the borders, uh, the five borders, the Hexagon, the uh, France, uh, itself, uh, and, and out with, uh, France, it's back to kind of classic, uh, uh, liberalism, kind of the laissez-faire capitalism. Um, and, and neo-republicanism then is that kind of strange pseudo left, but mostly right wing approach to politics, uh, that Emmanuel Macron c- uh, captured quite well until he did his weird turn towards bullshit Napoleonism. Um, and that is a, is a chief keyword. And there's uh, one of my actual lectures at, at uni, um, Emile Chabal has two great books. I'm trying to remember what they are. Like one's like France since the 1970s and one's like Republicanism in France that I really recommend. They're actually super accessible. Um, but that has its whole own meaning there. And that's without even getting into something like Ireland, where like Republicanism, obviously since, since pre-1916, is it means its own thing. It's not just sort of uh, against the concept of monarchy. It's also against the 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 imperialism of whether it be of the British state or of any sort of, um, uh, you know, overhanging empire and the idea that, you know, potentially neo-republicanism could be attached to something like the new IRA, which is, you know, some may say a bit more gangster-like than the provost uh, and and possibly more just about gang warfare. And, and there's all these kind of really interesting elements to the concept of republicanism that I think they might be pointing at or gesturing at um, and bringing that into the, the context of Star Wars to kind of give texture to something, you know, the Republic was something um, in, in, in Star, in Star Wars world before now that I think like people who consider themselves not assholes would kind of at least 
these tacitly support. And now they're giving all of this color and texture to it by having the sense of like worldliness and awareness of, of the, the, you know, the, the, the world out, outside, you know, the world beyond the tip of their nose. And, and it's making Star Wars all the richer in a way that I didn't think was like legal. <laughs> Yeah, it's honestly making Star Wars as rich politically as people say it is for the first time. Yeah. Like people talk about how like liberal or whatever the New Republic is, or they're setting up the same systems, but that almost felt like a side effect of whatever character stories they were saying. Yeah. And this time it actually feels like it is the grounded political reality. Uh, before we move off Luthen, there's two things with him I want to uh, talk about, and one will probably transition us elsewhere. Um, the first is that he is probably aware of uh, the fact that Clea is looking for Cass. Um, so there was some question about that last episode, but it appears um, she is looking for him on Luthen's behalf. Whether the kill order comes from Luthen isn't 100% made explicit, mm. um, but we do see like Val and Cinta are on Ferrix. Um, and we'll probably talk about that next, but I also don't want to miss that Luthen has been given a nickname by the Empire. He is now known as Axis, mm-hmm. which I think is really fun. Yeah, it's also really good. I was kind of giggling at this because um, in, uh, and again, this is a Manu Watch Rabs moment, um, in uh, the early history of the Rebellion, um, a lot of the kind of uh, forces that would later come to to comprise the Rebel Alliance um, had a source uh, in whether in the Empire or whether without uh, who was called Fulcrum, um, and there were multiple people who were canonically Fulcrum at one point or another. And I don't, I really don't want to spoil any of them except for one, which was Cashin, uh, and that's in the comics, I believe, and maybe a book. Uh, so not likely to be a real spoiler for anyone. Um, so Cashin was at one point Fulcrum, uh, and Fulcrum and Axis are two uh, like vehicular or I guess engineering terms that are fairly closely related. Um, and and I and I was kind of giggling at that uh, at the idea that the both groups of uh, enemy combatants came to the same kind of sense of a of a nickname for one another. Um, and and the fact that I I would say in the end. Uh, Cashin's a one fulcrum is a much cooler one, but the idea of like axis and also of that, of course, being like a kind of gentle or subtle, not subtle nod to the the literal axis in World War Two, uh, is like man, this this show rocks! Like it's so good. Yeah, and with uh, Valencinta, uh, we're repeatedly seeing the show's strengths in terms of characterization, and that like they kind of define these characters. And then their interactions are defined by the character as opposed to where the plot needs them to go. Um, and with Val and Cinta, they aren't sacrificing their individual characterizations. We actually find out quite a bit more about Val here, um, that she was a rich girl possibly <laughs> running away from her problems or running away from guilt and being somehow connected to the Empire. That might be how she, she so easily fit in in Coruscant last episode, whereas Cinta is here for the struggle. Like she made that clear early and whatever kind of relationship or future that Val and Sinta have, uh, that absolutely is dependent on the struggle. And I think that actually contributes to what you were saying about how everyone has this sense of doom hanging over them. You almost imagine that Val and Sinta are going to be like that couple that was found like in the wake of Pompeii, like their skeletons oh. hugging each other, <laughs> like something like that. I'm not trying to be too brutal, but almost like the same ending as a Cass and Jin from yeah. Rogue One. Like that's that's how it's going to be, and I think that it just like deepens everything that's going on between them, uh, knowing the sacrifices they're making both to each other and to the rebellion. Um, that it's all probably doomed in the end. Yeah, yeah, and and I think like 
oh, are we going to do this? Are we going to do this? Yeah, let's do this. Let's kick open the women chat. Um, I, yeah, that's what I'm going for. Great. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to give you the floor. Have at. Oh, wait, me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But no, I think it I think it is worth talking about how this show is writing women. Um, they've written women more successfully than all other live action Star Wars combined, and that may even apply to the animated world. Um, I'll give the comics some credit. Dr. Afra is a really good character. Yeah. Um, but like between Mon Mothma, Deidre Miro, Vel, Sinta, Clea, Bix, Marva, goddamn <sighs> fucking Marva, and even Edie Karn, uh, Cyril's uh, mother, <laughs> like they have written like that's basically eight nine characters that are instantly memorable that i'm going to carry with me for the rest of my days more so um you know no offense to anyone in any other show but whoever's uh boba fett sidekick yeah um who are you i can't remember um uh, ming na wen she's great but like th th this is like when you create real characters that are grounded both in interiority some kind of internal characterization plus some kind of ideology one thing that's kind of come up is like a like revisionism of the girl boss discourse of late um, because people thought like in 2014, 2015, when you were finally getting like some franchise IP with uh, woman led uh, roles. And it's usually women in like male coded or warrior coded yep. roles. Um, like they can be the one with the sword. They can be the one that fights. Um, that was, you know, when it's like really took off was viewed as a good thing. But then there was, you know, a backlash and kind of more in line with some of our politics. Like all you're doing is giving the oppressor a different face um, or a different gender. You're not actually going at the root causes of violence. You're just allowing an, some other people into that small club of oppressors. Um, and then recently I saw some tweets as like everyone makes fun of any woman character that's good in anything as a girl boss. Um, but have you ever thought about, uh, you know, we deserve to have our girl bosses too. Um, just, you know, like people who kick ass. And I think this show is showing a clear distinction between what I would call girl bosses like Mon Mothma and Deidre Miro, um, because they are doing it in service of whether the Imperial Security Bureau or the Galactic Senate. Um, they are still kind of like trying to carve off a piece of power from the source of the oppressor. Uh, whereas you have other characters like Vel, Sinta, Bix, Marva, Clea that are not doing that at all. And they're awesome, quote unquote, strong women characters, which is a phrase that kind of, you know, has been overused and kind of beaten to death. Um, but it is something where you're seeing that not the only way to write women who like actually do things in stories is not just to have them carve off a slice of the power structures that are in place. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's like, Oh boy, I've been doing this all day. I've been like, uh, Connor has worked from home today and I, my office is at one end of the house and he works in the living room, haha, soccer, uh, at the other end of the flat. And so I've been like barreling back and forth all day to be like, and another thing. Um, and and this is where my brain is at. Cause, Cause there's something, so this show in the main cast or like the main kind of cast being everyone who has appeared in more than a single episode, um, has like almost exact gender parity like it's almost 50 50 and and like i feel like i need to to say this you know my lord of the rings fandom should probably make this clear but that is not typically something i really care about like i tend to think that like trying to get gender parity when you're forcing it um ends up screwing you because what you do is you get really shitty women characters who are just like obviously there for the sake of being like the pussy patrol um which i hate um and and i think it is like patronizing and, and awful 
this show hit gender parity or damn near gender parity. And I hadn't even noticed it. Um, and then I was going through and doing the math and being like, holy shit, it is like 49%, 51%. Like what on earth has happened there? And I think one of the things that, um, and and I'm going to try and be careful about this because I don't want people to take the wrong um, message from, from what I'm saying here. But I, I think the reason why this is successful is because there is not an attempt to write women characters. And I think it's kind of like the Ripley and Alien thing, where Ripley was not originally mm-hmm, intended mm-hmm. to be a woman, um, but Ripley was then played by Sigourney Weaver, um, and there was no changing of the script, uh, or a minimal changing of the script and minimal changing of the character to accommodate for the fact that Sigourney Weaver is a woman. Um, and that kind of, I don't want to call it genderless, but kind of almost gender agnostic approach to writing characters I think in some ways ends up doing a far more interesting um, approach to writing womanhood um, and to writing women um, than the ones that kind of go at it from the mindset of I'm going to write a character who is a, who's an explicit critique of patriarchy or I'm going to write a character who is a victim of patriarchy or I'm going to write a character who subverts patriarchy. And when you write these characters who, who are for all intents and purposes at literally equal to men, and then add as an additional fact later, either just purely through casting or through some minor changes, this element of there being there being a woman, um, you get, I think, a more accurate portrayal of um, of womanhood. Um, and it's because um, being like and and you know there's a, there's a chance that I'm kind of overstuffing my bounds here, and and my kind of specific experience of womanhood is is a specific one. Um, but womanhood to me is never a, an aggressively active thing. Um, for me, um, womanhood, my womanhood, the fact of my being a woman is not something I'm really aware of until I am made to be aware of it by an external force. Uh, when I'm sitting in my chair working or when I'm uh, you know, playing games or when I'm walking around outside, I'm not going around thinking, I'm a woman, I'm a woman, I'm a woman. The wind feels differently on me because I'm a woman. I'm walking on a different side of the sidewalk because I'm a woman. Um, I'm going around thinking about literally anything besides that. Um, and, and the moments in which I, um, I become a woman are the moments in which, you know, whether it's through something benign, like, uh, someone calling me miss or someone calling me lady, um, or, uh, something more aggressive, like sexual, uh, like some, some level, some degree of sexual violence. Those are the moments in which I become a woman. Um, and, and in all of those other kind of instances uh, with that, uh, I am, I am just who I am. Um, and that I think is the kind of woman that we are seeing in the, the women characters of, of Andor, which is to say they are not, not women. They are women characters. Um, but they are only women characters at the moments in which they are made to be women characters. And those, those moments, I think, are also incredibly thoughtful. Um, because we haven't seen things like sexual violence here. Um, I think the Empire, as we're seeing it in Andor, is scarier and more violent and more horrifying than it has ever been in in, in the history of Star Wars. This is the mm-hmm, Empire mm-hmm. at its scariest. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that things like sexual violence and things like rape are probably rampant. Why do I think that's true? Well, because the Empire mirrors America today, or or just the world generally today, and rape and violence against women are, are endemic, right? But this show doesn't feel the need to kind of hold our hand and, and train a camera on a woman's crying face as she's violently assaulted or raped. Um, it, it, it trusts that we can understand that the condition of all people, but women in, in either in particular or women generally is, is not good uh, because violence is endemic to the system that they've set up. Um, and it trusts 
through, through having a level of sophistication and a level of trust and a level of respect, not just for its characters, but for its audience, it kind of has this, this confidence that the things that it will say about women will be true. Um, and whether that is, you know, by kind of interesting subversions of uh, kind of stereotypical gender roles, like the uh, the conversation between Cashin and Marva, and um, Cashin takes on the kind of women's role there, which is that he is primarily concerned with care uh, and with taking care of someone. And Marva's like tough shit, man, like tough shit. You're just going to have to buck up and and deal with it. And that's a very traditionally sort of masculine role. Um, or whether it's the fact that like Bix has been, you know, kicked to shit, beaten up, uh, literally tethered up. And and not once has there ever been a worry that she'd be raped or, or sexually assaulted. Um, and it's not something that I'm like actively thinking about in the show. I'm actively like waiting for someone to get assaulted. And the fact that I'm not having to wait for that um, and not feeling like I need to be kind of on tenterhooks over that is such a relief compared to how women are generally written. Like even the, in the Rings of Power, um, there were all of these moments where like they brought in misogyny, real world misogyny. And I just would be like, why? Like, why? like now I am stressed out. <laughs> like now I'm even more stressed out than I was before. And like, I didn't need to be stressed out. And this TV show is like, look, misogyny is probably real, uh, or is definitely real. Uh, you know, violence against women is definitely a thing that exists in this universe, but we don't really need to put it on screen uh, for the same reason that we don't need to put on screen the, the horrifying image of a black man being hanged um, because it trusts the audience to get it. And by having that level of trust and, and, and outright respect, look at the caliber of characters that we are getting. Look, every single woman in this show so far, for me, is a more compelling quote unquote woman character than Princess Leia at her best. Like, Holy shit. Like, like literally better than Leia. <laughs> like, like that is the ultimate woman character. And in this show that's only been, you know, a- around for eight weeks and has only had eight episodes, we've, ha- we've had someone best that. A- everyone best that. Every woman best that. What the hell? How did that happen? <laughs> Um, I like the point about how um, your gender kind of comes into play when confronted with sexual assault. Eh, that sounds bad, <laughs> the way I'm phrasing <laughs> that. But like, like the only mention of explicit sexual assault in this show so far was when Val and Center were hiding um, under some rocks before the Aldani heist, and a guard comes and takes a piss, literally pulls his dick out yeah. right by them, and then he makes a joke about, and he makes essentially a rape joke, and there you see Val and Cinta look at each other and like grind their teeth, and I think that's like exactly kind of what you're getting at. Um, but while these, like most of these characters could have been cast regardless of gender, yeah. but then it's also not running away from it. Cause like Mon Mothma's dresses, she is dressed yeah. up in femininity. She is performing femininity in her role as a uh, galactic Senator. And I think that's great. That's a great way to do it. And I think especially with say Deidre Miro, um, like that is someplace where I think her gender actually matters in the system that she's in because she's surrounded by mostly old white men um and she's a young woman she sticks out um like those are the few roles i'd say like mon mothma deidre and maybe marva because of that like mother-son relationship are the only spots where like gender need be explicit for what the story they're telling there but i think it just speaks to the depth of all these these are all people um not one of them is shortchanged or made to be reduced to what their gender is or how we'd assume our gender politics of our real world would just translate one-to-one to this world. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think there's this kind of respect for like, um, it's something that I kind of go back, back and forth on, uh, and I've done a lot of kind of writing on uh, in, in the groups that I organize with uh, here, which is like, 
um, women on the left um, are allowed to be women on the left. Like, no, 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 not women on the left. Women on the left are allowed to be people on the left until the point at which there needs to be a woman. Um, and and a lot of uh, you know, I just did a dissertation on on literally on women on the left uh, in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, and and a lot of the kind of interviews I had with people was was this kind of getting at this idea that like. Um, the, these women didn't think of themselves primarily chiefly as women. They thought of themselves chiefly as uh, radicals, uh, as socialists, as communists, and as working class people. And then kind of secondarily, there is this additional label of womanhood. And I think that's actually quite a common thing for people who are involved in the kind of traditional left, the the labor, the trade union left, the the kind of anti-imperialist left. That That is like a kind of, uh, uh, I would not say a standard, but it is a common enough thing. Um, and, and I think this show is is doing that it is doing that in a really interesting way because the, these women are when they are operating they're not constantly stopping to talk about the fact that they are women they're not constantly thinking about the fact that they are women um, and 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 that is a, a more realistic and more kind of a liberating kind of position um, than than this kind of need to have a woman look at the fucking camera and be like, I'm a woman and I'm strong. Um, these women have the freedom to behave like the men and to be radicals first and foremost who are committed to the struggle and women second. Um, and, you know, where the men are allowed to sublimate themselves, traditionally men are allowed to sublimate themselves to a cause uh, without thought for or regard for almost any of their other identities. Um, w in this show, the women are being afforded that luxury, that right to sublimate themselves, to become the cause, to become a radical first and foremost. And like Sinta says, a person, a romantic, someone who's in love, a woman, second. And that is a it's, it's not ideal. I'm not saying that come the revolution, I want that to be the case for everyone. But I'm saying in this context, it is nice to finally have that kind of uh, equitability um, and, and to have that kind of uh, uh, similarity of experience, not just because it, it so closely represents the experience that I'm used to um, on, on the left, but because I think it is, uh, it is, it is nice and it's kind of relaxing to watch and not having to kind of constantly be, you know, hackles raised about when this issue of um, being a woman uh, and the the unfairness and the violence that is tendered by, sorry, I'm not crying, I'm just losing my voice, <laughs> the kind of, uh, you know, violence that is rendered against women by virtue of being woman, a woman, uh, not having to kind of wait for that to constantly come around and then not having to wait to deal with the fucking discourse around it. It feels like a Caribbean fucking vacation. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to swing it to the other side, because the thing that I found very interesting was the interaction between Deidre Miro and Cyril Karn, <laughs> um, because their interaction ends. And uh, Denise Goff is shorter than Kyle Soller, and he is like standing up and he is standing taller than her. But the, when she walks up to him, even though she gives a few inches, he is like kind of quivering in front yeah. of her. Um, you know, like she has presence, even though she's not as tall, um, is not like kind of traditionally how they would, if they were trying to do a woman overpowering a man, they would make that a very physical and height-driven thing, usually in cinema and television. And they don't do that at all. And I think everything they wrote around this Cyril and Deidre scene is brilliant um, because, again, it's coming from that place where they wrote these two characters separately and gave them full interiority. And now we're seeing what happens when those things naturally clash or grow with each other. Like, <clears throat> both are hunting for Andor, Cyril a little more directly, while Deidre is more like, you know, he might be a way towards this axis. And most stories would go one of two ways. Either Deidre would just recruit Karn and, like, you're my toady now and we're going to work together and we'll find Andor, or they'll, like, 
spar against each other. Like, now we're going to be enemies for the next four episodes for a mini plot arc or something like that. But instead, you know, Cyril Karn just... He's a true believer that no one believes in. Yeah. Um, he can repeat his fucking mantra about how he was right, how he's after a dangerous criminal. And like, no one is impressed. Not a soul is impressed. Not his mom, not his supervisor, not High, not Blevin, not Deidre. Like, so no matter how committed of a cop he sounds like, not a single person takes him seriously because it doesn't look like Cyril takes himself seriously. Yeah. And Deidre has no use for this guy. She says, you've been service of the empire today. And she just like, I'm gone. You have no discipline. You're over eager. You have nothing to offer that Deidre can't do herself with her own meticulousness or the resources at her disposal. Um, I think it's just such rich storytelling. Um, even while, you know, Andor remains this like essentially white whale for Cyril. Um, everyone's like, Dude, come on, man. Even the people who like agree with him in terms of ideology are like, dude, come on, yeah. man. <laughs> well, you know what? I think this is it's one of the benefits, and we go we we talk about this every time we talk about Andor, but like it's it's one of the benefits of of having a a, a, a showrunner who has a, a, an obviously clear sense of why and how the world works, and and every part of the story flows from that because it is clear that he understands or or has a has a has confidence in his understanding of how the world works and the stories. Um, then kind of uh, come from that rather than there is a story that he is trying to tell and then he's going to fit everything else, all of the other, bend all mm -hmm, of the other mm -hmm. rules of the world to fit that story. Um, it is a story that is intensely grounded in reality. And because it's intensely grounded in reality, um, all of the, the the characters as well have this kind of sense of they don't move in pursuit of the plot. Um, the plot moves in, moves in reaction to them. Um, and, and there is this, this kind of... Um, it, like it introduces, I think the 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 I mean that that series of scenes between Zero uh, Karn and and uh, my my girl Dieter Piero, <laughs> the Lenny <laughs> Reef, just all the most fucking crazy character I've ever seen. Um, those that series of scenes was like just masterful, and I think one of the reasons it's also masterful is again because it's introducing this really interesting um, thematic component of capitalism, which is the the kind of. Uh, subjugation of emotion of emotionality and this is something that we talked about in uh the fellowship of the ring episodes uh, i can't remember the exact number but it was one of the fellowship of the ring episodes when we're talking about like men and masculinity it was one of the last ones i think it may have been like 19 20 21 or something like that um and 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 this idea that um crying uh, and and overt shows of emotion um are something that has been um uh, like basically turned into something illegal <laughs> or uh disallowed by capitalism because it's not immediately productive um and there's also a sort of imperialist component to that in that like um it was a very specific type of white anglo-saxon protestant who kind of um uh, pursued this um anti-emotions um approach to the world and and in and and in and in, in trying to sort of propagate this approach, this anti-emotions approach to the world, um, set the kind of austere and stoic white Anglo-Saxon Protestant against everybody else, and that would traditionally have been like in a, from a very Orientalist point of view, that would have been an Arabs. This idea that Arabs are all loud and shouty and in your face, and that is somehow a bad thing. And it is you know the, the idea that because um, you know Arabs dare to show emotion, that it's a sign of like laziness or or uh, hyper radicalism or stupidity. Same thing goes for uh, Latin American people as well. There's this idea that because like particularly Latin American women are like perceived as being hysterical or loud and shouty and in your face, that's some sort of sign of like lack of productivity or, um, 
uselessness to capitalism unless it is tamped down on. Um, but also it's a key component of anti-Semitism. Um, and, and, and particularly for like Ashkenazim, um, and this idea that like, uh, kind of the traditional sort of, uh, well, ways that people used to socialize before we all got fucking mm -hmm. weird about it, but like talking with your hands, talking loudly, arguing with one another. Um, and like, particularly the way that like people, uh, like Jewish people will, will like treat argument, not as a, like as a knockdown drag out fight, but as a very normal way of coming to a certain synthesis or not coming to a certain synthesis because God knows you don't need to solve every argument to still have a good relationship with someone. These things are treated by capitalism um, and, and like what like Protestant supremacist capitalism in particular as as an evil. And you're seeing Karn and everyone's kind of been talking on Twitter and I think this is this is totally accurate. Um, like Karn's mom um, is is definitely meant to be a stand-in, Star Wars stand-in for a Jewish mom, right? Like, like we all know the trope that they are playing at here. Um, not a trope in a negative sense, but like we all know that she's meant to be the Jewish mom and, and we all got that from the start. And so that gives a really interesting um, kind of uh, uh, like texture to to his character in particular. And then Kyle Soller going out and doing an interview being like, he's got, I, I feel like Karn has like a bad digestive tract. That was also very funny. Uh, Kyle Soller, I got you. Uh, we're, we're on we're on side here. Um, but this idea that like, you know, he is someone who's very emotional and he is doing a lot of these I want statements. I want to capture passion. I want to be recognized. I want to be um, vindicated for the things that I'm doing. And Deidre Miro, man, she doesn't show a single emotion. She is sitting there like, why are you crying in front of me, you pathetic little man? Like, you pathetic little worm of a man. Those emotions make you a liability, and now we're not fucking working together because you can't keep your shit together. And she is this perfect, like, avatar of the, like, cold, like, a deeply emotionally suppressed sort of ideal, you know, British Protestant imperialist. She is what that kind of anti-emotions capitalism was aiming for, particularly vis-a-vis -vis women who have always been stereotyped as histrionic. And the ability for a woman to close down her emotions and to siphon off any sort of emotional life or emotional interiority was a key component of allowing women into the kind of, particularly since the 1950s, into, into the kind of edifices of financial capitalism and allowing them into, into workplaces and into to white collar workplaces. And to have those two going at one another in these scenes and to know that like all of that insane shit that I've just rambled off there isn't actually, like there's no way that's me reading too far into that. There, that is actually probably a very legitimate criticism that they are trying to like uh uncover in this writing like how is this a disney show i don't understand how this how disney has let this happen <laughs> yeah uh also when uh cyril is first brought to interrogate we start with a shot of his feet because he's nervously tapping his foot <laughs> which is very different from the other boots we see watching or walking whether it's the you know, very self-assured Imperials or the prisoners walking barefoot. Um, I like that they are very consistent with using that imagery. Oh my God, that's um, such a good catch. I, I feel like um, since you got all into productivity and labor there for a second, this would be a good chance to transition into our look at grind set and <laughs> pr productivity culture in Star Wars. Um, there's a reason the lines are blurring between prison labor and factory labor. The prisoner suits even look like the corpo outfits with the same stitching and orange piping, but they're just white instead of blue with the color sucked out of them. And you're really just supposed to look at this and make, you know, think of an Amazon factory or like you said, Fordism, just inhumane working conditions and the sort of security and restrictiveness that... You we hear about Amazon factories, like when they say when they close all the doors and prevent workers from escaping a fire. 
Um, there's this line that Andy Serkis delivers as Kino that productivity is encouraged, evaluation is constant. <laughs> um, and as much as, you know, we can talk about this in the context of Amazon and Amazon warehouse working conditions are awful, but this is kind of seeped into every working environment in the U.S. Yeah. Um, like, because even I, in my previous job working in DevOps, we would have things called sprint segments, <laughs> which we would just call, you know, all the various projects we have to get completed um, with undue stress because of artificial dime, uh, deadlines and timeframes. <laughs> and I even like the point where they say the least productive will be disciplined. And part of our the last corporate environment I was in, we were, you know, having multiple evaluations year round. We were evaluating each other after every project. Um, and we also had like eight projects that we were all working working on that probably required like six or seven people, but we only had three. Um, and this is exactly the kind of work, like it's, like I said, it's both the factory environment, but it's also very much an office environment in the same way. Um, it's like a really cutting critique in this episode. Yeah. And, and you know what? Uh, it's actually funny. So context for our audience. Um, I was late to this recording uh, because I specifically was getting fucked uh, over this stupid artificial deadline because I also work now in tech and have to deal with scrums and sprints and epics and agile and whatever KPIs, whatever other bullshit. Um, and I was giggling like a moron during all of this episode because I was like, I recognize this and like I am... I'm the furthest thing. Well, not geographically. I'm actually two streets over from an ex-jute mill. So not the furthest thing from industrial work, um, but spiritually and figuratively, the furthest thing from industrial work. And yet the grind and the pain and the sort of modern Victorianism of it all um, felt very real. And again, I'm like, this is such a sophisticated way of handling this because it is doing this thing that people have been pretending, you know, it's reconciling these two things that people have been pretending are impossible to reconcile, which is like the sort of factory work of of uh, of the industrial revolution, the the kind of stuff that Marx and Engels were describing, um, like especially in Manchester, especially in the north of England, um, and it's reconciling that with the the sort of um, allegedly petty bourgeois kind of work of 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 the internet age, of of the computer age, of the digital age, and for for decades now, people, like leftists in particular, a certain type of leftists in particular, has been pretending that these two things are utterly irreconcilable, uh, and then here comes some fucking Hollywood big shot to walk in and be like, actually, they're reconcilable very easily, and look at these things; these things are basically the same, and and um, you know whether you are a you know like a fucking .net dev who uh, having to spend all day you know doing weird shit for. Uh, like intangible work for a, a, an ephemeral product that is the internet, or whether you are a guy who is making, uh, you know, car parts in a factory in the middle of Alabama, and you know you're having to work alongside children uh, who are being horribly exploited. These two things have a sense of commonality, and what that commonality is is oppression by the bourgeoisie, right? And 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 amazing for uh, Tony Gilroy to be able to cut through the bullshit like that and make the point that like there is a clear and common. There's a there are there are so many things that are common the uh, common features between these things and one of the key things is is the alienation from the product right like right after this episode aired aired or, or right after our group chat uh, you know dropped the guillotine on uh, on spoilers um one of the conversations we were all having was what the hell is it that they're making um, and team crack team I think uh, which is team they're making the KX droids uh, and it's going to be some cool shit with uh, Cash and deprogramming uh, a KX droid uh, as he deprograms himself 
the, Ooh, to make K um, is, you know, that's one side of it. But there's also the, the perfectly legitimate and justifiable argument that maybe it's a TIE fighter part, or maybe it's none of the above. And, and I think the, you know, it's a fun conversation to have, but I think the important thing is that we don't know. They certainly don't know. And that alienation, that sense of not knowing what the, 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 the kind of final product that not getting the full, to reap the full value of the things that you produce. That is true of both, you know, computer developers and of people working in a factory and, and marrying the, the, the kind of jargons and the vernaculars of these two, again, mind blowingly in a Star Wars is a really good and effective story to tell. Um, because it, it allows you to kind of access and unlock both the kind of ha ha fuck the WeWork guys with the, uh, ha ha fuck the, the Victorian factory owners. Um, and these are two different things that have two very different sets of aesthetics and, and, and emotions, uh, accompanied by them. But when you put them together, together wow look at what look at everything that you now have access to and look at all of the the kind of wells that you can now exploit yeah um as soon as you said the thing about they're alienated from the labor and who cares what they're making i felt so bad for positing it was possibly tie fighter parts no no um, that's just so because, good though i agree with it well i don't agree with it i but think yeah. the alienation from it is that's great um i think that is that would be the point, even if it ends up being part of a KX droid or whatnot. Um, I absolutely love it. Or if Cassa po possibly learns um, how the droids work or some inner workings of it through this experience. Because, um, okay, before I get there, uh, first I want to talk about the other bullshit that they cut through here. Is because, like, in some ways, the working conditions here are quote-unquote good yes. in terms of it's a clean environment um everything is very sterile um and they're given food they're given clothes they do this whole healthy workers a happy workers a good worker <laughs> thing that's why they get unlimited food paste um they can have as much as they want as much water as they want they have a space to shave everything looks like it's kept very prim um the very best workers get flavor <laughs> but it's this great idea that oh we can make you know, we can make your office like a home. You know, you can do everything here. You can clean yourself. Everything will be nice and ready for you. We'll have all these amenities. Um, and it really cuts through that no matter how many amenities or how well they dress it up, it's still the same dehumanizing kind of work and alienating kind of work. Yep. Yeah. Oh, God. I, that is such a good point. That is such a good point as well. And I, and I think there's also like... Um, it, it gets to this other thing where it's like, just because you are being given crumbs does not mean you need to be happy with them. And it's, it's a big conversation we're having now in the UK because, um, like, so I, I live in a two bed flat with double glazed windows. Uh, it's fairly new. I think it was 1930s build. Um, it has cladding on the front of it. It has kind of central heating. Uh, and, uh, we were paying 80 pounds a month. Uh, last year, this time last year, for gas and electric. Uh, and we are now paying 260 pounds a month for gas and electric, uh, which is just this massive blow up. And it's all, of course, artificial. Uh, it, is a, it is artificial inflation. The, it's just the robber baron bullshit. Um, but we're having this conversation a lot in, in the UK, which is that there is a, a certain contingent of people who think that, you know, well, just because now, you know, you know, 50, 60 years ago, there were rolling blackouts uh, and people were cold all the time and people died of hypothermia and People were hungry and starving and they made it through, you know, we survived, we were tough enough. And, and, and another contention of people who are like, well, sorry that it sucked for you. That's really sad. And it shouldn't have been the case, but just because it sucked for you doesn't mean it now needs to suck for, for me here and now. And, 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 and again, cutting through this idea that just because, you know, it's, what is it? Three hats and a cot, right? Like just because prison gives you the things that, that you are missing, um, in, in, in your life outside of prison, your quote unquote liberated life doesn't mean that prison is fucking good. And in the same way that just because capitalism right now is apparently giving us, I don't know, 
innovation and variety or diversity or whatever the fuck in our products and things we can buy. And just because some people are making a lot of money doesn't mean this is good and doesn't mean this is the end game. Um, and and having using a, a nice Apple store looking prison to articulate that is good because it's recognizable to so many different types of people, but also carries that emotional weight of literally prison. <laughs> yeah. Um, really quickly, I want to talk not about the ideology for a second, but actually just the narrative tension that's in all these prison scenes, because they create this tension by kind of bombarding you with procedures and rules. <laughs> and like they're listing off all the things they have to know, whether it's when they first arrive at the prison or when Andor is being marched to his table five or when he meets Kino, Andy Circus. like everyone is filling him with so much information and you as a viewer are kind of put in the place, oh, do I have to remember all this? If Andor steps out of line here, will something happen? Um, or, and you see Andor also doing a bunch of calculation in his mind. It's like he's counting in his head. How many steps does it take that guard to walk over to me? How far is this from the boot wall? Where is the control council? So like, even as like, quote unquote, nothing is happening as a lesser reviewer might say, <laughs> like you see all these things happening where Andor is clearly like paying attention to every detail of what's around him. Remember that he caught everyone's handedness and Aldani like, oh yeah, he's left-handed. That person's right-handed. <laughs> like they're showing us him kind of working this out. But then we also have these imps and we have Kino who's telling him, you have to do this. You have to do that. If not enough, this is done, then this happens. And it feels like they're putting all these sorts of hurdles that any one of them could be something that Cass slips up on. Uh, but we, you know, it's just so much. I just love how there's a real sense of tension and they kind of release it in the last shot of the episode because we see Cass after 30 shifts, like fully work baked into his team. Like he's on the team, even though uh, Circus tell you know, berates him a little bit for taking a breather. You see that he's quote unquote, a productive member. He knows what he's doing. And the camera just zooms out with him and his team of people that include some great names like Jembok, <laughs> Zal, Olaf, Taga, Ham, and Melshi, yeah. uh, which we'll talk about in a second. But um, it really does a great job of just creating tension and releasing it within just this little setting. It's not like a big part of the plot. It doesn't necessarily feed into the ideology, but they just do a great way of keeping attention there. So at no point are you ever like relaxed during these scenes. You're always on edge because you're always afraid that one little thing's going to go wrong and it's going to fuck Cass over. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I also think there's something really good here because like it's like the, the it is information overload in the dialogue. And, and and then it does something good and interesting, which is it uses the camera to tell us what the dialogue isn't or or is overloading us in terms of the dialogue. And that is the intended point. Like we are meant to be just hearing loads of shit that that really just doesn't make any sense and makes us feel uncomfortable. But then it's using the camera to show this is where Cashin is looking right now. Cashin is noting that this is where the the prison, the screws uh, hang their boots. And Cashin is noting how many steps um, it has taken each imp to do this. And he is noting the fact that he is looking at and noting the fact that uh, one of the guards was late because something was going on. Um, and it's using that camera work to show us that there is a, a is a, there is an undercurrent here, and that Cashin is a smart guy, um, and that he is learning things and able to pick up on these things. And I don't mean that in like in a patronizing way, because obviously, as you rightly point out, and I'd forgotten about, it, he picks up on 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 the hands, uh, you know, lefted right handedness um, on Aldani. Um, but it also, I think, then makes the really interesting interaction where. A whole bunch of the prisoners are asking if people on the outside, um, people who aren't in prison, are freaking out about the Galactic Patriot Act and mm -hmm, and about mm -hmm. the 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 rebel insurgency on on Aldani and and Cashin, who is still not 
pissing or getting off the pot denies it and says, oh, I don't know what the Patriot... In fact, you know, he doesn't even... I don't even think he has the balls to speak. I think he's fully lacking a spine at this point. You know, he doesn't even say, oh, I don't know what that is. I think he just lets them... You know, he just shrugs and they kind of figure it out from there. And he doesn't own to being... Just like with Marva, he doesn't own to being involved with the Aldani stuff. And that, I think, leads to one of the inmates killing himself. Um, And I think there is this kind of lovely commentary on... And Cashin is noticing these things. He's a smart guy who's noticing things. He's a smart guy who picks up on the details of the world around him, but he's not really putting two and two together. There's still a missed kind of step. Um, and and I think, um, I, I, I'm wondering and kind of hoping and praying that this will ultimately lead to some sort of prison strike um, or prison riot, um, organized prison riot. Um, but, you know, Cashin should have noted that notice that these guys who are asking him these questions um, aren't asking him these questions because they're going to try and fucking kill him. They're asking him these questions because because rebellions are built on hope um, and because these guys need hope in a horrible, hopeless situation. And um, without getting into something too controversial, if Cashin had spoken up, if Cashin had said, yeah, people on the outside are bad, and yes, there is a rebellion that is brewing, and actually I was involved in that rebellion, or someone I knew was involved in that rebellion, he doesn't even need to take the like direct kind of responsibility for it. Would that man have killed himself? Um and and is is Cashin's alienation from his fellow man, his his abject social isolation, um, emotional and social isolation from everyone around him, is that not now no longer just impacting him negatively is that now having an outsized external impact um and is there some sort of liability like is it not just enough to say that like us being kind of aloof and and unsociable is bad for us emotionally because it makes us sad and is this now also arguing that um us being aloof and emotionally sort of stunted and incapable of reaching out to other people also actually hurts other people. And there's more to who we are as human beings than, than our sort of inner monologues. Yeah, no, absolutely. Cause I think one of the nice things I really liked is that that guy didn't kill himself by on the floor, like immediately, like Cass doesn't have news that first day and he doesn't kill himself that night. He kills himself the 30 shifts later or after at least it looks like a month of time has passed. So it really shows like, he could have given him that little bit of hope just to last a little bit longer. And um, if you're doing Star Wars and hope is one of your central kind of themes, I guess, it's literally in a title of one of the movies or the subtitle, however you want to call it. (laughs) And it's the premise of Rogue One in a sense. It is actually very smart to go to prison for part of that story because a very key part of the uh, prison genre of stories, like the Shawshank Redemption, let's say as one of the most accessible ones, is how you need to hold on to hope during this. And that's what all these people were looking for, was a little bit of hope, because everyone had their number doubled. That's how they think about it. They have a tab. They literally have to look at their tab every day. Um, And then for no reason, they just heard it was doubled, and no one has any idea. And this extends beyond just the prison. This is also happening in Mon Mothma's dinner room. No one knows exactly what happened at Aldani. Some people are saying they slaughtered everyone, they blew it up, and it really it was just a heist. It was a robbery. That's how, you know, what's it called? Cast still describes it. It's like it was just a robbery. It wasn't anything else. But we see how different pockets of the galaxy are like, oh, well, it was a murder. It was a demolition. It was this, that, or another. Um, because, like, information under Empire doesn't flow as freely as it could otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I have to be, I have to tread lightly here, but 
Um, I think as a central kind of defining point of, of the American uh, experience in the last 30 years, 9-11, I think, has to factor into this. And, and you know, mm-hmm. 9-11 as the sort of impetus for the Patriot Act. And and not to say that 9-11 was not significant and not to say that it was not a national tragedy, an international tragedy, whatever, a deeply, deeply horrific and traumatic thing. 9-11 was also not as, uh, as like, immediately uh, uh, devastating as Vietnam, as the Korean War, as Afghanistan, any day in Iraq at the height of the Iraq War produced several 9-11s worth of death. And the actual death toll of 9-11, while, while every life lost was, was individually deeply significant, the actual number statistically, and it, it is a horrible and awful way to think about it, but it is true. It, the, the statistical number was not actually that that high. It was not actually that significant compared to the amount of death caused by the Americans uh, everywhere else in the world. Um, and yet 9-11 is treated, I think, basically on par with, uh, with, with D-Day, or not D-Day, D-Day rather, sorry, uh, with Pearl Harbor. Or D-Day, I guess, but mostly Pearl Harbor, um, or 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 with any like you know with any of the other sort of um, mass casualty events in, in in the United States or moments of war of all out war. Nine um, Eleven, I think, has a disproportionately large position uh, taken purely on the kind of raw stats, which is again a, not a great, but and also kind of deeply emotionally depraved way of looking at it. But like, I think this is also kind of what it's arguing it, it now is Aldani is kind of like the galaxy's Nine Eleven in a way, in that it has morphed into something so much bigger than it is. Like, you know, I, I was having a conversation. I, I don't, I barely remember 9-11. I was like three. Um, but I was having a conversation with someone who was born after 9-11. And, and they were like, oh, well, you know, like 10,000 people died. And I was like, uh, nope, 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 <laughs> nope, no. <laughs> that like maybe in the long term when you when you factor in like firefighter deaths and the sort of environmental uh, degradation of lower Manhattan and all of the horrible, awful things that, that came to people as a sort of uh, environmental reaction to that. Um, yeah, maybe we get up to that. But like, no, it was not that many people. It was not, you know, multiple at like tens of thousands of people. It was not a, a, a war, an entire battle in itself. Um, and and for these people who are growing up after or living alive after 9-11 and don't have the immediate context of it, it seems like it could be, um, whether it's the conspiracy brain, it was a controlled demolition, or it was just as big as uh, an entire war in a single day. Um, this kind of exaggeration is a key kind of linchpin of um, uh, of kind of protecting and maintaining the, the, the American empire and the American police state. Like, how do you justify this insane? Like, this is always my thing, right? We always have to take our shoes off at the airport now, right? Because they didn't catch a guy with Ooh, that a actually ties bomb. into this episode. That's good. Oh, yeah. Shoes, baby. Oh. Uh, yeah, and this is how we also know that Tony Gilroy is not an online man because no guy who is pre- like permanently online would have done this many foot shots. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm, star- I'm starting to take a stance that um, after having done it several times on this podcast, that Quentin Tarantino jokes are stale and boring. Um, in terms of foot jokes, so I'm going to vow here not to make any more Quentin Tarantino jokes whenever we see feet <laughs> on screen, but we sure did see a lot of feet on screen. There were a lot. <laughs> there were a lot. It was also kind of weird for it to be like a kind of, like, it felt like kind of vindicating in some ways because I was like, because of what I just said, there's no way anyone who is like terminally online or who has ever logged onto Twitter would do that many foot shots in, in a TV episode. And the fact that they did it is a, is a weirdly good sign. 
Oh man, we're almost at 90 minutes. So I don't want to go on too much longer, but I do want to talk about maybe like my favorite little moment in this episode. Um, and this is when uh, Miro, Deidre Miro, deploys actually to Ferrix. Mm. Um, and she's basically doing her interrogations first of Pac, the guy whose uh, facility contains the radio that Bix has been using, and then later of Bix herself. There's this point where they've captured Bix and are bringing her in for questioning. And they're just, just Deidre, Captain Tigo, and a tortured Pac, like on a torture chair, just in the room. And Tigo's like, should I clear him out? Um, and then... Deidre's like, no, leave leave him here. I want her to see. And then the minute Bix walks in through the doorway and sees that Pac is there and has been tortured and is nearly catatonic, Deidre puts on this like good cop routine. It's like, oh my God, why is he still in here? Get his body out of here. Get him out of here. <laughs> um, just so it kind of like sets up a different tone, even though she does play kind of a hard line with Bix. It is just such a little moment that Deidre understands the performance of politic here. Um, and it's more of a performance of authority, less so politic. Um, one and the same, perhaps, maybe. But I just really like that little bit. Like, that tells me that they are thinking about these characters at such a granular level. And that makes sense with every other detail in the show kind of lining up with that. Yeah. And I think it's also, like, it is really interesting because there is this kind of, um, like, not in-universe, but there is, you know, I made the joke up top, like, oh, it's Jessica Chastain in Zero Dark Thirty. But it is. Like, it is. It is this very direct reference to, like, torture as a whole and this idea that, like, you know, She's obviously not, Deidre Mara, not torn up over torture at all. She's not batting an eye at this. But this whole idea that even though she's not personally emotionally affected by it, she's recognizing the kind of um, emotional impact of it and exploiting that is totally in line with the recent history of American war movies. I mean, literally, it's the like oldest joke in the book at this point, but the idea that the Americans will invade your country and then make 20 movies about how difficult it was for their fucking jacked up Marines to have to go invade your country. And it'll just be them crying for six hours. Like, like it is that, it is that sense of exploit the emotionality of it because the actual politics, your actual politics on this as a, a torturer are so uh, inexcusably dog shit. Yeah, no, and it makes sense that we're getting this whole Port Act, which is essentially the Patriot Act, and then this is the episode where we really start seeing torture. Um, I don't think those things are supposed to be like decoupled. There, there's a very good reason these things are entering the story at exactly this time. Yeah, yeah. I guess we should, uh, before we sign off for today, also talk about Mon Mothma, which is like the one big uh, part of the story we haven't really hit at all. Um, so my question for you is, how many squigs do you take in your champagne? One or two? <laughs> um, I will take two because I'm not a coward. Okay. Um, I will take zero. Um, actually, no, I'd probably take one. I, I like to try things um, because they have these things called sw- squigs, which are essentially little worms that they put into their cocktails or champagne, however you want to call it. Um, it reminds me of olives in martinis, uh, scorpions, uh, which are all often found like inside tequila bottles. And it's supposed to be disgusting, which reminds me of my local drink, uh, Malort. Uh, anyone who's been to Chicago has probably been made to take a shot of Malort and thought, what the fuck is this? Uh, it is what, like corn seed driven alcohol or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I'd or it's distilled from corn seed because that's all we have here in Illinois. Uh, but it is disgusting, but it is it's one of those things as, as the show focuses on, in on details, these are exactly the kind of drinks that the like bourgeois would be enjoying at this party. Yeah. And there's a, this is my favorite thing to tell, uh, cause it's just peak tourist culture. 
uh, there's a bar in uh, in in Yukon, Canada, I believe that is, uh, and they have a whiskey that has a like a frostbitten finger in it, um, allegedly from some worker who lost his finger in the cold in the Yukon cold, and they like have tourists take shots out of it, and they've like built it up as this like whole tradition of oh yeah we've always done this this is a thing we've always done and they are literally just making tourists pay to drink body whiskey like it's disgusting but tourists do it because tourists are morons and this has the same vibe uh yeah and it's uh this is also because it's funny here that they're having a lot of the same conversations that are kind of happening in the prison or at least they're running parallel um because they're talking about the same act the public order resentencing whatever um i don't really remember what it all stands (laughs) for but like you hear like what these people are talking about like parents like yeah she's trying to save the empire from the emperor like that's pointless and who cares anyways um, and we see, I'm, I'm kind of losing my train of thought here, but, um, I do like how we're, we're seeing how the same conversations are cutting across all sectors of society is what I'm getting at. Yeah. We see it with the rebels. We see it with, um, like the Imperial Senate, which was what I'll call this scene. We see it with the Imperial Security Bureau and uh, we see it with uh, Cass in the prison and we see it in Ferrix. We're seeing all these people being forced to answer these questions. I think that's why it's so relevant that Luthen and Saw's conversation is in this because now everyone kind of has to start asking themselves these questions. And part of the reason Cass is in jail is because he's one of the people who hasn't started asking him these questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's also, I think it's kind of interesting because there's this, uh, there's an immateriality to the way that like Mon Mothma and co talk about it, which is like, you know, she, she being Mon Mothma, she'll put on her like, breathy sort of this is the most important thing and i care about this so much and and these people around me are fools for not caring but really it's immaterial to her um, and and these these questions are actually very important for the people literally getting tortured in jail and and to see that kind of two 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 sides of the coin and how nice is it that mon mothma gets to drink her champagne uh while uh people are literally being tortured and uh isn't it good that there's not that same sense of urgency uh between these two yeah, and I really like the bit where uh, Mon uh, comes up. Um, it sounds weird calling her Mon, but when uh, Mon Mothma comes upon Perrin talking to another couple and all they're talking about is the view, oh, you must spend hours here essentially saying they just navel gaze and don't do anything, uh, which is a very cutting critique, I think, of maybe Mon Mothma's at least outward politics, if not her actual politics. Um, but it is like very just telling that's like oh you should just sit here and look out your window all day one forgets to savor the familiar mon mothma says to that i think it's a very good um like exploration of the mindset of these people as they're having the same conversations as the prisoners their material reality is not i got my jail sentence doubled it's ooh, the views are so nice up here yes yes exactly god what a line as well i was cracking up because she does this like mon mothma does this whole oh we should shouldn't we and i'm like god have a spine tell these people to fuck off man um anything else you want to say about this episode um anything else i want to say god it's all perfect uh, i got i got nothing because if i do i'll talk for the next 10 years <laughs>
Yeah. Like there's so much stuff. Like we barely touched on the Ferrix stuff. There's apparently a daughter's of Ferrix, which I don't know if that's like a retirement oh home God. or a rebel alliance group. Oh God, uh, it's Daughters of the American Revolution, I bet. I graduated at Dar Hall in DC, Daughters of the American Revolution Hall in, in DC. And that is a weird fucked up organization. Not as fucked up as its sister organization, Daughters of the Confederacy. But if you want a valuable insight into the concept of American womanhood, dive down that Wikipedia hole because it will ruin your life. <laughs> So uh, why don't we go ahead and read off our patrons for today? Um, so we'll start with our $10 patrons. Again, if you sign up at the 5 or $10 level, um, Emily will give you a Middle Earth name in either Cinderin or Quenya. And through that, you can pick one and we will read them on air. The $10 patrons we will read at the end of every episode. And we will alternate reading off various $5 patrons. So... For today, we'll start with Lothamana Palinque, a.k.a. Johnny Flores. Silent Spider, Guardian of Carathungal, a.k.a. Ed the Revelator. I Wendell, a.k.a. Haley Glyphs. Uh, Aranwo Minyatar, a.k.a. Matthew Abbott. Ithredor of Kolkarthad, a.k.a. Maddie Hugh. Salquendil, a.k.a. Cam Lewis. Melma, a.k.a. Zach Newman. And today we'd like to thank the following $5 patrons. First, Zoe, a.k.a. Farrowin. And Rosono of Aranor, a.k.a. Lenny Not Dead. And just a reminder, you can send us emails about Andor at mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com or send them to us on social media at mybromycapmypod on Insta and Twitter. As you can see, some of our discussion about Andor is just basically whatever we want. So feel free to send us questions and we'll work it into our discussions. So that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, uh, and or there and or back again, whatever you want to call this episode. And you can support us by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll get access to special bonus content, Patreon-exclusive episodes, early access to all episodes, and a Middle-Earth name. Anyways, I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me finishing up Podcast Sans Frontiers with our last episodes over at Podcast Sans Frontiers and returning to A Song of Ice and Fire at Nauticast ASOIAF, where we just finished covering House of the Dragon. And I've been Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweetin, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be documenting in extreme detail all the Tootsie shots from this episode. Saying Sagrona Tima to our sound editor, DJ Empirical, a.k.a. Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ethroglier and Retheon on Twitter. Wait, no, he's DJ Empirical on Twitter. The other, the other <laughs> bullshit is what I just call him. <laughs> Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. A U will endel. A U will. God damn it. Uh, you do this one, I'll do the next one. <laughs>